welcome to the Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation with Melbourne's favourite historian, Robin Anier. In Corners of Melbourne, Anier takes us on an unorthodox tour of the city's streets and corners, telling stories about the events and people that have made these the most interesting places to be. In this book, Anier introduces us to street corner galvanisers, who offered the thrill of electric shock at Thropence a time, the rude boys of the Fitzroy back streets, who became the original larrikins, infants named for the corners in which they'd been abandoned, a rogues gallery of unruly women, incorrigible men and runaway horses, and, of course, the civic reprobates who discarded orange peel in the streets to the risk of life and limb. We hosted an ear at Readings Carlton to discuss Melbourne and, of course, its corners. Here's the host of the event, Readings bookseller, Bernard Calio. My name's Bernard. I work here at Readings. Uh, we are acknowledging, of course, that we are sitting and talking and thinking and probably some of you writing, like as, we, as you sit there, on Aboriginal country, always has been, always will be. And I wanted to use Robin's words because they're pretty bloody ace. In considering these tales from Melbourne's history, keep in mind that this used to be a country without corners. We acknowledge, with respect, altogether, all of us, the first peoples and custodians of Warangeri Woiwarang and Banarong Bunwarang country, past, present and forever. Oh dear, oh dear, Robin Anir's here. What to say now that she's so near? Well, Robin Anir is an aviatrix of the archives. She's a spelunker of the caverns of historical words and pictures. She's an journalista, sensationalista of yester-yester. <laughs> but most of all, she is a confiding and continually amusing flanners of the streets and spaces of a Melbourne long gone. These daggy, extraordinary streets that we all tread daily and like a like a gimlet-eyed, quick-witted Tinkerbell, Anir sprinkles a little bit of fairy dust on the blue stone cobbles. But the best bit about it is that the fairy tales that Robin Anir tells us are true. Robin Anir, it says at the beginning of this book that it took 39 weeks mm. to make. Yeah, it sounds like the title of a film, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Were you inspired by Buchan or what, what, the, what the hell was going on? Oh, yeah, Buchan. No. Uh, what was happening? My publisher said, do you want to write another book about Melbourne? And I said, yeah, but the problem, the problem was that I put all the bits and pieces that I had, you know, tucked away in files of interesting things and boxes and behind things yeah. in the previous book. You'd run out. That was my, as I said in the beginning of that book, that was my forgettery. That was where I could put things so that I could then forget about them. Right. Well, now I needed to find out some new things to forget. But you said, it wasn't you saying, yeah, look, I'll give you 39 weeks. It was them saying 39 weeks. No, no, weeks. no. I said, they, they gave me a deadline and I said, yeah, no problem. And it was, you know, more than 39 weeks. Oh. Off, but I faffed around a lot in the meantime. I had other things to do and I, you know, I was trying to think of an idea on the run. Anyway, trove newspapers. 
Brilliant. Trove newspapers, the uh, digitised Australian newspapers available for free online through the National Library of Australia. Fantastic. So I just constructed a devilishly clever search. Yes. Uh, which said something like, on the corner of, in inverted commas, Street, Melbourne, and searched selected Melbourne metropolitan newspapers. Piled the stuff up for me well. and I went through it with the help of my uh, research assistant and partner, David. So he... David! Had David had time on his hands and he was my, uh, was my wily and, um, and, and valuable... Ferret? Uh, Would you call him a ferret? In this? Oh, <laughs> how did you know? He used to have a company called Ferret Tech. <laughs> Whoa, things are happening here. He, he is, he, he's an archaeologist and he proved the value and the truth of that. Uh, in the work that he put in on this. And so between us, we, uh, we compiled lists and lists and, and documents and documents and then I went through them I trans uh, because I can't resist doing this. I then transcribed all the winning ones, the ones I really loved, onto uh, a library catalogue cards and sorted them because that's the best way to sort anything, sorted them into, you know, chapters essentially and, uh, and, and from there just had to write propulsively from start to finish. Left you about five weeks to write the book. About that. Yeah, yeah, yeah great. Yeah. By the time, by the time I did, but it was great because I didn't have time. Thirty-nine weeks doesn't give you time to get sick of the topic. This wasn't like that. That's a great thing from my point of view, and it, it amazingly revealed corners of Melbourne that I had that were completely new to me. New corners. I thought, well, you know, things in corners. Yeah. Uh, I thought I knew Melbourne, but you know. There were things that had eluded me yeah. hitherto and uh, they found their way into this book. What weaveled into your mind to make you think, I'm going to put corners into this search? Was that a...? Was that a well, I, I had had an earlier idea which was pillar boxes because I do love the postal service. I wanted to be a postie but I couldn't ride the bike. So, <laughs> so, so I've, 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 I've been a, you know, a, a, a postal lover from afar but... Pillar boxes, I love. They are on corners. Now, I couldn't really find enough to make a book out of, kind of a right turn from there, and expanded my vision. But yeah. pillar boxes do still feature somewhat in here. So yeah. the pillar boxes led you to the corners, mm. to putting that na that word in, in the search, and then the, the cornucopia of yeah. Trove opened yeah. up its... Um, it did. Fantastic. Indeed. Okay, that's the story. That's the story of where this... That's the origin story. There's lots of places in this book and there's lots of people. Mm. And there's a couple of people who are like recurring characters. Like nightmares. <laughs> a little bit nightmarish. Actually, yeah, both of them are. Well, yeah, yeah. the ones are, yeah. Okay, so way. the first one, can you talk a little bit about E.G.? Okay, E.G. Fitzgibbon. Now, anybody who lives in Parkville might know Fitzgibbon Street. Street. So he was the town clerk of the city of Melbourne from 1856 until 1891. 35 years, folks. 35 years. And he was just a boy when he was appointed. But he was a very particular kind of character. I'm sure he talked his way. In fact, I, you know, the, the bloke who had the job before him, who got the job over him, had sort of a mysterious illness. It wasn't fatal, but it, but it put him off the scene. Fitzgibbon was there to step in. But he, he was a very particular kind of character. So he really ruled the city of Melbourne for those years. Of course, he saw councils and councillors and mayors come and go, but he was the constant and he really ruled the roost. He had very thin skin and a very hot head, which is a, <laughs> a, a bit of a fatal combination. So one of the stories I tell of him in here was somebody wrote something disparaging about him in a letter to The Age. Anonymous letter. 
can I quote? Anonymous. Anonymous Absolute. letter. Yep. Uh, it says that the volunteer uh, artillery regiment was composed for the most part of snobs. His only military ardour consists <laughs> in wearing a gay uniform and officered by quill drivers. Chief among the quill driving commandos was Fitzgibbon, whose profound military skill, the sarcasm is dripping off here, uh, the letter satirically skewered. Yes, and he didn't approve. So quill driver, of course, is the holder of a pen, which he certainly was. Anyway, he didn't approve of this. He appealed to the Age's editorial staff to reveal to him the name of this anonymous letter writer so that he could take his revenge in person, man to man, uh, but they would not do so. So one day, Ebenezer Syme, proprietor of the Age, stepped from his office in Collins Street and there at the corner of Collins and Elizabeth Street waiting for him was E.G. Fitzgibbon. And they knew one another somewhat through social circles. They walked together northward on Elizabeth Street discussing the letter on the way and again Ebenezer Syme said, no, I will, I, you know, I can't, I can't, I don't know, but tell I... Tell me, I, tell me, I, tell me. But I couldn't tell you anyway. And he, he's, he more or less told him in so many words to get over it, you know, to just lighten up, which is a big mistake with E.G. Fitzgibbon. So at the corner, at the St Francis Church corner of uh, Elizabeth and Lonsdale Street, McGibbon's fist went back and collided with Ebenezer Symes' cheekbone. He fell to the pavement. Legal action was taken against Fitzgibbon, but because of his standing, because he was a gentleman, because this was seen by the, was it a magistrate or a judge, as more or less akin, more akin to a duel than an assault, <laughs> and that, that Fitzgibbon's reputation had been damaged by an anonymous letter, uh, he, was, uh, he was let off pretty much scot-free. Just two a two-pound pounds, fine. Two pounds, and he continued to rule the roost as town clerk for many, many a year to come. So uh, another recurring character that we get is a brilliantly named, like really, there's a lot about naming in this book, but this woman's name is Kate Breakwell. Can you talk to us about how we first meet her? She is, I was going to say scantily clad, but she is not clad really? at all. Very scantily. Like yeah. as scantily as it gets. As possible. It's 7 o'clock in the morning at the corner of, I forget, Swan Street and some other street, a pub with a... Um, drinking trough, horse trough out front and Kate dives in to the horse trough naked screaming, I'm on fire and then jumps out, runs along Swan Street to the next horse trough and dives into that and she does this with three subsequent troughs uh, screaming, I'm on fire the whole time. The police eventually throw a, I don't know what, a police coat, jacket. Covering. Around Kate and escort her to the police station. She she recurred in the records many many a time. She was very fond of breaking. Tries um, breaking the Somerset Arms with a bottle. With but a only bottle. broke the bottle. Only broke the bottle. <laughs> but not the window. Um, and she would and she was a, a comic figure in the local magistrates' court. So she'd she'd always dance out to the cells afterwards, waving and saying, "See you next time, boys. Mind your windows while I'm away," and things like this. So that was Kate, and she, I last found her when she was an old woman, which meant she was about, you know, 50, living in Richmond in Glass Street, in <laughs> fact, living in Glass Street, and she appeared in the newspapers because her neighbour had broken her windows. 
First World War and uh, Kate had uh, taken exception to the fact that this woman had German ancestry and had uh, slung some mud in her direction and the woman in return had broken Kate's windows. And she said she's a very sweet lady and we like one another a lot but you don't want to get on the wrong side of her. <laughs> and I think that was the story. So she was rather like, you know, Fitzgibbon Indeed. in that way. Fiery, yeah, fiery, fiery, fiery. Fiery, fiery. Yeah. We, I mean, we get a lot of that in this. We get a lot of stouches. This is the thing with using newspapers as a source. I will be the first to admit it that, you know, it's where you read about stouches. It's where you read about bad behaviour more than you read about good behaviour. So we know that these same neighbours who were slogging one another were also, you know, as <laughs> uh, Kate Breakwell's neighbour said, she was a nice woman most yeah. of the time. No. You don't read about that in the papers. No, so. no, that's, yeah. that doesn't, unfortunately that doesn't get reported. So from those characters... Because larrikins are, uh, they, they have a big place in this book. Uh, and you do some beautiful work in the book of tracing the word, the, the larrikin mm. term. And try these amazing lines, I think, about as the word sort of forms into the form we know, larrikin, it's like the word and the world are sort of moving together they and form forming themselves around it it sort of sang them into being yeah i think it did so the word larrikin if you read the newspapers of 1869 or if you dove into trove as i did in 1869 you would not find it 1870 january you find your first mention then a, a few a sprinkling of larrikins before the end of that year it was wall-to-wall larrikins barely a paragraph in any melbourne newspaper did not contain the word larrikin i'm sure it existed on the streets before that so the street in particular was gertrude street in fitzroy and the corner was the corner of fitzroy street and at that corner in those times was a thing they called the granites which were lumps of granite left over from the building of Granite Terrace, which stood facing onto Gertrude Street and was quite a splendid row of three-storey, I think, terrace houses, granite fronted. This stone was left over and it lay there for years on this corner allotment. And the young guys of Fitzroy would gather there and they'd lean and lounge and sit around, but they'd also one of the pieces of granite was a nice flat, it worked as a stage for them. So they'd actually do their, what became larrikin dances. They were a bit like um, river dancing, a bit like river dancing. But um, less well paid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and they used to kind of do these dance-offs on here. But they also used to sing songs and recite songs from songbooks you could buy on street corners in the city. And one of them was called The Leary Cove. It was from a, uh, a West End stage show from 1865 or so. It arrived here in the form of a songbook. These guys took up the lyrics and they took to calling one another Leary Coves and Leary Kin and Leary Kids because Leary meant kind of streetwise, knowing and kid or kin meant young, and these were young guys. They were like 12, 13 to 15, and they were kids who'd been born in the gold rush decade of the 1850s, and they'd been indulged to the nth degree by the Australian climate for a start, so they could spend their evenings out getting into trouble, where at home they'd have been driven indoors by bad weather. Of course, they lived in tiny cottages with their big families. So, again, they were driven out onto the streets. And they got into trouble. There were lots of them. In South Melbourne, for instance, at this era, 45% of the population was aged under 15. So, just imagine the youthful energy. Sort of mischief. wild colonial the boys. Wild. Yep. So, they were yep. known as 
colonial boys pre-1870. Leary Kin caught on. The other suggestion was that it came from an Irish policeman giving evidence in court who said they were lorican <laughs> in, in, in Smith Street. He was a Collingwood. But nearly every policeman was Irish and they all would have been talking about larking in court for donkey's years. But this came to the surface just then. So it's believed to have grown out of Lyrican at the corner of Gertrude and Fitzroy Streets. And, and, and that was where it arose. And making it, making it dangerous at uh, Moore and Napier Streets, making it pretty dangerous to post a letter. That letterbox in particular at the corner of Napier and uh, Moore oh. Street uh, at the Fitzroy Town Hall was danger zone number yeah. one. Yeah. And, I mean, but it did take some years for them to crack onto the idea that you could, you could piff a cigarette in, end into the, into the letterbox and cause cars. And, and the, uh, they were potentially to be uh, sentenced to seven years in prison for doing that. It was the Postal Service, my love. Yes. The Postal Service was taken so seriously yes. and, and it was treasured. It so was great. a century after your own heart. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, they used to empty those letterboxes like 12 times a day. Oh, <laughs> stop it. I know. If only I could have been a postie then, I wouldn't have even needed to ride a bike. <laughs> there, so the August in 1882 talks about the larrikin saying, there was no mistaking their well-known swagger, their peculiar dress and their titivation. They wore flared trousers, Ooh. tight, very tight. They look good. They, I think so. Yep. They wore their hats at a certain angle and they were just individually, like young people every individually, Sweet as, but in... Get them in a gang. Get them in a gang. There's uh, several sequences in this book, folks, where cops pursue the larrikins and the <laughs> larrikins pursue the cops and they're like hour-long chases, yeah, you know, yeah. just like, whoa. It's, it's, you get, you, sometimes you have to get up and have a bit of a drink and then come back to the book because it's getting pretty heated. And it uh, wasn't just the cops and the larrikins. It was a whole crowd, sometimes thousands <laughs> strong, would join in because what else were they, was there to do? No TV. So they, no TV. So they uh, And they always seem to end up in the Collingwood Swamp <laughs> or in the North Fitzroy Swamp uh, and could go no further because they'd get their, their swanky shoes wet. Yeah, you've got to look up. After your shoes. And I do want to bring in another ooh, mysterious returning character where a cop is in real trouble uh, with a larrikin. Drop the bat on. And out of the darkness. <laughs> out of the darkness at a street corner materialised a woman, a veiled woman, a veiled woman who seized the baton from the ground and lashed into the crowd and rescued the policeman. The policeman. Uh, from his predicament and it wasn't the first time I read in the paper that this woman, this mystery woman had appeared in those sorts of situations numerous times and in a very manly way it said, had uh, and the, the veiled woman, had, had leapt into the fray and had, had rescued the policeman and helped to apprehend the miscreants and uh, helped him wrangle them to the, uh, to the local lockup. So. We do not know who this woman was. She was mentioned but in passing. And it was not like the newspapers not to name names and point fingers. But uh, we don't know. Was she the Premier's wife? Was she? Was she? Um, was she Lady Locke? No, after Lady Locke. Oh, Lady Locke. Yeah. That's right. She was the governor's wife. Governor's wife. That was also the name of a well-known prostitute. Sure. Who was named that, that... in her honour. <laughs> um, dubiously. Dubious. Dubious. Well, as a comic book maker and reader, it's to me the... Th Melbourne, old Melbourne lover, the idea of this mystery masked woman appearing and coshing bad guys is just a bit, whew, it's a yeah, bit exciting. Yeah, no, it's yeah. a bit, and it's, it's a bit ghostly, which is very in keeping no, with your yeah, sort of yeah, take yeah. On, on, on Melbourne's past. You know, was she the ghost of all these Victorian women who, who lay in unvisited 
graves, as uh, George Eliot wrote about, you know, mm. who, who died young in childbirth or in some other unfortunate circumstance and nothing was ever heard of them and their lives went unremarked. Was she the sort was of concentrated exactly. essence of these, of these women behind a veil in, in the, the street the with a baton? Boom! Revenge. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly it. Take that. That swirl of energies that Melbourne uh, managed to attract to itself through gold and through land sales and through crazy, <laughs> all that sort of business. Remarkable. Uh, I want to move on to bill posters. Bill Posters? Yeah, yeah, which is not a man's name. They will be prosecuted. <laughs> they will be prosecuted. Well, actually, will they be prosecuted? Yeah, yeah that was always a big question. Talk to us about bill posters and, and so the trade, I guess. We, I think of this a bit like the sort of Roman or Greek statuary situation where there, there's be these beautiful, white, pristine creatures who we now discover were painted garish colours and were really lurid and weren't at all the chaste figures that we, we now think of them as. Same with Melbourne's buildings and Melbourne's what we think of as heritage now. We think of it as, as, as clean and as clean lines and as, as gracious and all the rest. It was plastered with advertising, either painted on or more likely huge billboards just defacing almost every building and... If they weren't the big billboards, they were what were called snipes, which were these like bumper stickers, which were stuck all over the fronts of buildings and around their veranda posts in the, in the dark of night, advertising usually some sort of suspect medication, usually for that would stop you masturbating and give you virility. <laughs> um, uh, With and, one medication. Um, so uh, this, is, this is a lot of advertising was about that. What about this guy, Bernard Smith, who was sticking snipes <laughs> not onto buildings... But on the people. On the people's back. Yes. That, was in, that was in Burke Street, yes. yes. He was particularly energetic. I don't know how he stuck them. I suppose they had a pot of glue. But yeah. apparently the first person across Princess Bridge when it was rebuilt was a bill poster. And he was heading for the huge billboards oh. that were there to be covered in, you know, always changing bills that were at the front of St Paul's Cathedral for the many years it was being built. And that's why it took so long to build <laughs> St Paul's Cathedral because the church was earning thousands of pounds a year while these hoardings were up. They were paid to uh, put... And it was... For beer and shows. Land sales. Land sales, rum and whiskey. There was a great one there, that a painted one. They went away from the paper ones for a while and had these great painted freezers. This one was right along the, uh, the Flinders Street face of the cathedral and it was... It was Advertising Federation, actually. It oh. was in the early 1890s. It was put up there by the Australian Natives Association, it was called, and it featured the premiers of New South Wales and Victoria, both as brides, and they were marrying. <laughs> uh, and the person who was doing the ceremony was the head of the Australian Natives Association, and this was a first-grade advertisement for why we, should be, uh, why we should be being federated in 10 years' time. Beautiful. And the painted one reminds me that you remind us in the book that this fashion for painting on advertising was started by that guy, that English guy back in Regency times, uh, Robert Warren, <laughs> who painted by Warren's blacking, 30 Strand, the address. But where did he paint it? In enormous letters? On the uh, Great Pyramid of Giza. And, of course, there was no <laughs> photography then, but people uh, made uh, drawings and sub subsequently <laughs> engravings which made their way back to the newspapers of Britain and Europe. People were scandalised. Scandalised? But nonetheless, great advertising. Oh, and genius. I have thought about it since. You know, he didn't... He may never have actually painted on the pyramids. All he needed to do was put the story out there. Like I say, there were no photographers. Hardly anybody went there. 
He just put the story around that he had done it. Genius. 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 So advertising was much, much bigger in Melbourne and everywhere than we can now picture it. And Melbourne was a multicoloured, bill-posted city, every scrap and skerrick of it throughout the second half of the 19th century. So you really have to adjust adjust your TV yep. um, to see that. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a great, yeah, again, this is a great book for adjusting the TV, getting that more, that more information. Okay, so I just do want, do want to tell this one about, because in 1893, mm. they found old hoarding and it, would, it had been walled in or whatever and it was, it was advertising um, time capsule. Yep. It was like the trove of yep. 1893. There was um, an advertisement for Braid's Concert Hall which read, don't go to Braid's tonight. You will enjoy yourself too much. <laughs> <laughs> they knew how to do it. They had all the lines. Uh, with that, may your bathosphere into the depths of Melbourne never stop bathing. Uh, may you continue. In what I am seeing now is an epic poem of Melbourne that you are, that you are writing, bringing those voices back into our ears. And... Yeah, we'll see you next time at Readings. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been great. Corners of Melbourne is available via all reading stores and from our website. You'll find all kinds of other recommendations, great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.